0: Well, we're continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke this morning, so you can turn to Luke chapter 11. I also printed our passage for you this morning in your worship folder. But as we begin this morning, there's a concept that we're all familiar with, and that concept is neutrality, neutrality. And uh, being neutral on something is sometimes uh, a very good position. Uh, It's prudent, um, it's the best option, sometimes, you know, it's just best to stay out of a controversy. It's best to stay out of a conflict. And we've probably all been there. But at other times, you know, it can be morally wrong to be neutral, to not take a position, and and sometimes we have to get involved. And we've probably been in those situations as well. And then there are those times that we get sucked in and are involved whether we want to be or not, and we wish we had the option of neutrality available to us but it's just not there. And we've probably been there too. Sort of sounds like a family reunion, you know, one time. So, at least some of ours. But when it comes to religious commitment in America today, it's often considered good to be neutral, or at least very, very close to it, staying unbiased, dispassionate about your religious commitments. And especially regarding Christianity, it seems often that the best position is to be slightly positive toward Jesus, but not thoroughly aligned with Him. That way, you know, you can be considered a Christian in certain situations, if you'd like to be, and in other situations, if it's too uncomfortable, you can sort of distance yourself from Jesus and you don't have to be committed. So neutrality can be a safe place to be. It can be a safe place to hide, especially in matters of religion, and it's true today in our culture, just as it has been in many societies, and many times, in many places in our world. But there's one very significant problem with neutrality regarding Jesus. And that is that Jesus doesn't accept neutral followers. He doesn't accept them. Those who lean slightly positive toward him, Jesus doesn't accept neutrality regarding who he is, his claims of authority, his works of power, that he is the true and only son of God and the only means of salvation for the whole world. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 11, and we're going to look at this passage this morning and talk about this together. You know, the general populace in this situation in Luke 11 has to make a decision regarding Jesus. They have to decide how they're going to explain the power that they see Jesus display. They have to decide, is it really from God? And if so, what's the proper response? Jesus in our passage is gonna call for a decision like he so often does. And in our passage this morning too, Luke who records this for us, it's also meant to be a reassurance to those of us who've already dedicated our lives to Jesus that we would see him for who he is this morning and understand how blessed we are that we've left that realm of neutrality and we've fully committed ourselves to following Jesus. So in our passage today, it's a very simple outline, starting in verses 14 to 16, Jesus performs a healing like he's done so many times before over the last two years in his ministry here. And people then give their opinions about his healing. But then in verses 17 to 26, Jesus clarifies what the real options are. People think that they have certain options, but Jesus will clarify what they really are. And then finally in verses 27 to 28, Jesus uh, just dismisses neutrality as an option and calls people to believe. And there's blessing if you believe. Now as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, we're actually at another little mini three-part series, if you will, within Luke's presentation, because Jesus, since chapter 9, has been on his way to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint to go there to offer himself a sacrifice for our sins. But along the way, different things happen. And starting in chapter 11 and through the rest of the chapter, opposition starts growing toward Jesus. And we're going to see a lot of that and some calls to believe throughout chapter 11. Now, in our passage today, it's referred to most commonly as the Beelzebel controversy, and it has parallels in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel. And most understand that uh, all the gospel writers are referring to the same event that took place here, although each gospel writer is going to give a very distinct uh, emphasis to the, as they tell the story for their purposes. And we're going to be focusing on Luke's presentation this morning and just integrate as necessary some of the other passages. But what we're going to learn from our passage in Luke this morning is that we're blessed when we leave the realm of neutrality regarding Jesus and we put our faith in him and fully commit our lives to him. And so, Jesus heals, and many people give their opinions. And so, the controversy begins. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. So, Jesus casts out this demon, uh, who's also at work in making the man mute. Matthew records also that the man was blind. And so this man is going to start speaking and seeing, of course. But this has happened so many times before, we don't even really need to go over it again. I mean, how many times has Jesus healed people like this over the last two years? So how are these people going to respond this time? They're observing in this particular city. How are they going to respond? Well, they have three responses, and starting in verse 14, and it says the people marveled. That's the first response. But some of them said, oh, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Second response. While others, third response, to test him, keep seeking from him a sign from heaven. So the first group, the multitudes, they're marveling at Jesus' work, that he could cast out this demon, he could heal this man from his uh, speech problem and his blindness. And Jesus has this authority over demons. They considered God's power, God's presence is with Jesus. And they wondered whether or not he might be the Messiah. This comes from Matthew's account as well. Could he be the son of David that was predicted? Well, that's one response. The second response in verse 15, we see that other people in this group, out of the general populace, actually Matthew and Mark pick out and pick on the Pharisees and the scribes, and because they accuse Jesus of actually being possessed by Satan, Beelzebul, himself. And that's how he's able to do these things. Now, the etymology of Beelzebul is unclear to us currently at this point, but the meaning of it is very clear. It means the prince of demons, it means Satan himself. And the significance of what they're accusing him of is very clear as well that he's possessed by him. So Jesus is possessed. By Satan, the prince of demons, and that's how he can do these things. Interesting theory. And then the third one, the third group, asks for more certain signs. And that's the one that really gets you scratching your head. It's like, how certain of a sign do you need? Then casting out a demon, healing somebody from a speech uh, they can't speak, and their blindness. But you see, as the text says, they're really just testing him. They don't want to believe. They want to find reasons not to believe. They want a sign a supposedly that's unmistakable from heaven, but you know, it's really unfortunate for them because Jesus doesn't do signs on demand. Besides, even then they wouldn't want, they would just want another sign anyway, never being convinced, never being satisfied. You probably have met these kinds of people before yourself. They're always out to test God and to, and to not really believe in him, but as well, you know, if God would do this or if God would show me this or if this, then I would believe. But God just lets those people wander in their own darkness and lets them think that they're so smart. And I know because I used to be there myself before I was a Christian and God saved me. That was my attitude toward God. But Jesus is going to answer this group directly. Now, that will come up starting in verse 29 when he talks about the sign of Jonah. But we'll get to that next Sunday. But so far in the passage, what we have is these people are trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And some people are amazed, and they have a generally favorable opinion toward Jesus. Other people are amazed, and maybe they're quite close to actually believing in him. There are some people that are against him pretty strongly and so strongly that they're actually willing to say he's possessed by Satan. Then there are other people that are uncertain, so it seems, but they're just up to playing games, and they want more evidence. And some are unconvinced, and they want to unconvince other people, as well, that they need more evidence, really, to believe in this Jesus. And the list could go on and on. There are many types of people, of course, in crowds. But Jesus heals while the people give their opinions. And people think that their opinions are so important. They're all looking at the situation, they think, as if they're some detached, objective observer. And they refuse to take sides on this matter, for many, many different reasons. But Jesus answers all these people, and perhaps us, maybe some of us listening today, at the very end of our passage in verse 28, when it's wrapped up with the summary statement, and Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it see, belief is required regardless of the level of revelation that a person has been given from God. Because God is in charge. People are not in charge. People don't tell God what to do and how much revelation they should get to believe in Him. God determines these things, and He doesn't answer to people's desires and demands. But blessed are those who leave the realm of neutrality and actually put their faith in and start following Jesus. Well, right after this this quick little exchange that we're reading about here, Jesus clarifies what the real options are to people, not the options that they think they have. And so in verse 17, we're told right away that Jesus knew their thoughts, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. He knows what they're thinking, what they're saying to each other, what they're murmuring under their breath. We've observed Jesus many times in the Gospel of Luke and throughout the Bible showing off this divine power where he knows what's going on in people's minds. And the speech that Jesus is now going to give has three main sections to it. So in verses 17 to 20, you might title that little part of the speech Logic and the Finger of God. Verses 17 to 20. Logic and the Finger of God. Verses 21 To 23, the overpowering of the strong man. The overpowering of the strong man. And verses 24 through 26, the parable of the wandering demon. The parable of the wandering demon. So Jesus begins his speech to these people in verse 17 and says to them, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus gives two illustrations of Satan's power in this world and his hold over people, a kingdom and a fortified household or a clan of people. And he simply states that if a kingdom or a family clan is divided against itself internally, it's just gonna fall apart. So it would be quite foolish then on this reasoning for Satan to attack his own troops. Why would he turn and do that? To attack his own fortifications. Doing so is going to cause a civil war within his house and ensure its demise. You know, Satan's favorite things and his tactics to destroy humanity have to do with disease and death and destruction. He's not going to act in a manner that's going to free people up from these things so that they can worship God, but that's exactly what Jesus has been doing. He's been going around freeing people up from these things, healing them, and showing his power so they can believe in him and worship God. And additionally, this kind of reasoning is not being applied consistently, Jesus is saying. He's saying their own sons, meaning perhaps even including Jesus' disciples or um, some pagans that were around at the time casting out demons, performing exorcisms. At this time in Palestine, exorcism was a very profitable business. You make a lot of money doing that. It was a thriving business. And so they really can't accuse Jesus of satanic power without actually accusing their own exorcists that they believed in and consequently then indicting themselves. And the last person you want to offend is an exorcist because who knows what they're going to do to you. And just think about it for a second. Casting out demons, in one sense, who cares where it comes from? That's a good thing. I mean, getting rid of demons and their involvement in people's lives, that's a positive thing. Why would they be upset about that? So Jesus, of course, is drawing more attention to himself because he's doing more damage than anybody else to Satan's kingdom. He's much more successful at casting out demons. He's much more bold, much more direct. He doesn't need some fancy incantations to cast out demons. The only real option, then, is to acknowledge that the power that Jesus uses is God's. It's the finger of God that has come upon you. And this is a very clear, direct reference to Moses' battle with the Egyptian magicians during the third plague in the story of the Exodus. In Exodus 8, it says, the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he didn't listen to them, as the Lord had said. And Jesus is referencing this story to show his continuity with Moses, and that he is from God, and he's using the very same power. And perhaps there's even a hint there here that some of the exorcists of the time going on in Jesus' time are just like those Egyptian magicians. They're weak in power, and they're opposed to God's purposes The finger of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit, as Matthew makes clear in his gospel. There's also a reference to the finger of God, of course, writing the Ten Commandments. There's a whole study for you if you want to do on the finger of God in the Old Testament. But in conjunction with Jesus' whole life, his claims, the rest of his ministry, we're supposed to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus brought the kingdom of God. The exorcism is just a picture He did did these all the time. It's a picture of the promised saving power of God that's finally come here in Jesus. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. He's brought the beginning of the end, and we just simply await its fullness when he returns in his physical power. The kingdom has come upon you, he says. means that they could feel it. They could feel its implications. They could see it. That's a great blessing to those who believe in Jesus, However, just like Pharaoh and just like the Pharisees in our passage this morning and many others, they harden their hearts and choose not to believe. How about you? Do you see the kingdom of God and feel the kingdom of God and the power of God's church around the world as it proclaims the gospel of salvation? The power of God and the Holy Spirit as as it testifies to Jesus Christ? You can't be neutral today. You can't be neutral in looking at this passage in the Gospel of Luke. And so Jesus continues describing the kingdom. And he says it's like the overpowering of a strong man in verses 21 to 23. The passage says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So what the people are really witnessing, and what we're reading about, is the cosmic conflict of all of the ages, the kingdom conflict. You see, the strong man is Satan. His house, his hold is on the sinful people of this world, and his armor are his demons. And since no human being or other angel is stronger than Satan... He rules relatively undisturbed in this world. And certainly God overrules in all things, but he's allowed this situation for the greater glory of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to see in a moment. But the super strong man here in our passage, as the text wants to say, is Satan. But the stronger strong man is Jesus Christ. He has decided now, at this point in history, that he's going to come and attack and overpower Satan in this world for the souls of men. He takes away Satan's armor. That is, he tosses about his demons as if they're just toy soldiers. He plunders Satan's treasures. That is, he takes away whoever he wants for his own kingdom, for himself. And some even consider this passage as a reference to Jesus giving spiritual benefits to people that had been bereft of spiritual benefits because they have been in Satan's hold for so long. Jesus granting forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and gifts and eternal life to them. And then Jesus makes it clear that if you're not with him, you're against him and you're his enemy. There's no neutrality in a cosmic war of this scale. It's simply not an option. Many people think that they can be neutral about Jesus or generally slightly positive toward him. Maybe you know some of these people. So, But Jesus makes it clear, if you're not gathering with him, gathering the harvest or... Gathering the flock, then you're actually scattering the harvest or scattering the flock. The point of this statement is that if you're not believing in Jesus and you're not wholeheartedly supporting his mission, then you're not only keeping yourself out of the kingdom, but you're keeping other people out of the kingdom as well. One scholar put it this way the one who does not gather with Jesus, who does not participate in his ministry and his mission, ends up being the cause of division. Such a holdout scatters. In contrast to joining those who gather. So don't be a holdout. Don't be uninvolved in the mission. Don't be a cause of division. Jesus has given his authority also to his disciples to continue the work. We already read about it in Luke chapter nine and Luke Chapter ten, that the disciples in the church, us today, have been given the same power by the Holy Spirit to continue the plundering, the destroying of the evil one's kingdom by preaching the gospel to people, telling people about Jesus, about the kingdom. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. Hopefully you see the glory in your work in telling people about Jesus and take great delight in doing it. It's a great joy to tell people about Jesus, to use the scriptures, to tell the stories about Jesus. You can tell this same story right here in Luke chapter 11 to people. And plunder the house of the evil one. God will save sinners out of their bondage. Well, finally, to cap it all off, what's really going on, Jesus tells the story about the parable, the story of a wandering demon in verses 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waters, waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So Jesus tells this parable about the exorcism of a demon addressed to those people who are neutral. Now, in the original language here, in the Greek, you could also begin the translation like this. Once upon a time, there was this demon. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. There was this demon, and this demon, after leaving an individual, he wandered in the deserts. That was a popular idea at the time, looking for another desirable human being to possess. But he couldn't find one. And so the demon considers his options and thinks about going back to his original home. It's possible, the demon reasons, that it's still unoccupied. And the demon might even reason, you know, it was such a great view in that house. We could do a lot of evil in that neighborhood through that person. And so he's in luck because the person has gone back to living a normal life. They've gone back a little bit reformed. They've cleaned up their life. Perhaps you know people like that. They hear the message of the gospel, but they don't really believe, but they sort of give little signs like they might believe, and so they sort of clean up their life a little bit and pretend to believe, but they don't really believe. That's what we're talking about here. They play the part. Better yet, this person, you know, has cleaned up all the mess. It's like the demon got free maid service while he was gone. I mean, what a nice surprise. This house is even more enticing for the demon to go back to now. It's still open for a spiritual tenant because the person hasn't believed in Jesus and received the Spirit of God. So this time, the, bring, the demon decides, I'm not getting kicked out again, so I'm going to bring seven other demons with me to make sure that we don't have to leave. And they're more evil, more powerful, more powerful they're going to ensure that they don't kick, get kicked out by those exorcists again that seem to be wandering all over Palestine these days, and even some of Jesus' disciples. Of course, this person is now worse off than before because his life's soon going to show the evil of the demons inhabiting him, the destruction that the demons will, will, will bring into his life. Perhaps this person, as Jesus tells the story, is never going to be free again. Because of their sinful unbelief in who he is. Don't be neutral. Jesus could be telling the story for a couple reasons. He could be telling the story against the shallow exorcisms of the exorcists of the day, those sons that are mentioned above, and emphasizing that those, those are really weak exorcisms, but my exorcisms, Jesus speaking of himself, are true and powerful and truly evidence the kingdom of God. Or more directly, Jesus is probably actually addressing those people who observed his exorcism on that particular day with that particular man and pressing in on them, so what are you going to do about it? Are you going to learn? Are you going to believe in me? See, this story is for everybody who fails to fill the spiritual void in their life. To fill it with faith in Jesus. Being spiritually empty is a great risk. Don't take the risk. Jesus declares that people who are helped spiritually a little bit but don't truly respond with faith are actually worse off than they were at the beginning. You've probably seen that to be true in your experience with people. I know I have. And Jesus has talked about this before, and his apostles in the New Testament will talk about it repeatedly, about apostates. You can read the book of Hebrews, read the book of 2 Peter, There are plenty of them around. Jesus clarifies here the real option. There are only two. You're either with him or you're against him. And blessed are those who leave the realm of neutrality to join in and following Jesus. Now, the episode's not over yet, actually. In verses 27 to 28, there's still a conclusion to this episode on that day. Because there's always one in every crowd. And here she is. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There's always one in every crowd, that neutral person who somehow thinks they're morally superior to everybody else in the room. And so we see this blessing that comes from this neutral woman. It's while Jesus is saying these things, you notice, Luke points out to us. This woman decides to blurt out of the crowd a blessing upon Jesus' mother Mary, also then therefore a blessing upon Jesus. This woman shows us that, new, that the neutral people seem to forever think that their praise is acceptable. But it's not. You ever notice that? People give tepid praise. They think they're so wonderful. People who think the church is just blessed to have them. I mean, Jesus gets lucky sometimes, I guess. So why did she do this? We don't know. But maybe it was to break the tension. It's a common mechanism of the neutral person. Maybe she said this to assert that she's for God in some non-committal kind of a sense. Maybe she did it to declare her gratitude for Jesus. It's a disarming tactic. We really don't know why, of course, but As Luke tells the story, the contrast is obvious because Jesus says, but rather, this is what's true. This is what's important. And so we're supposed to understand that her response is not an acceptable response. She is what you should not do in response to Jesus. And Jesus speaks the true blessing then in verse 28 when he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it Those are the ones that are truly blessed, and this blessing comes from hearing and obeying all the testimony that you've read in the Gospel of Luke up to this point, point. and that the people in Jesus' day that he's spoken to have already heard many times, because Jesus went about teaching from the law, from the prophets, from the writings, that how all of the Old Testament spoke about him, and they're to believe in him. And Jesus is specifically referring to these passages that talk about him as the Messiah. The blessing comes from believing in Jesus. And for us, that means all of Jesus' teaching that we hear throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus doesn't want praise without response. Belief in him, meaning living it out in his teaching. He he dismisses neutrality. He dismisses tepid praise, fake Christianity. And he blesses true faith, wholehearted commitment. So hopefully no one here will blow off Jesus' comments by joining in with the woman. Now we hope, of course, that because of Jesus' rebuke, maybe this woman actually got saved. But we know that those that are blessed are those that leave this realm of speculation about Jesus, where we began the storyline, and where we even end the storyline, these people just speculating about Jesus, rather than committing their lives to him. So if anyone here this morning is still neutral in regarding faith in Jesus, you need to know that you can't remain neutral forever. And Jesus is calling for a decision for everybody who comes into contact with him, everyone who comes into contact with this passage of Scripture in Luke. We cannot wait for further consideration, new theories, more evidence. You know, you can't wait for the next History Channel special, you know, or the next popular book the next edition of Time Magazine that's going to wow us again with Jesus and tell us how great he is but how, how not great he really is at the same time, which is what they all do. We cannot just be amazed and say generally favorable toward Jesus but non aligned. We have to be committed to him. So don't break the tension in your soul with a general assertion of gratitude like this woman. Instead, truly leave the realm of neutrality and join him as a true follower of Jesus. I've seen it many times. Where people are on the verge of faith and the Spirit is prompting them in their soul to believe. But instead of believing, want to break the tension by just some tepid praise. Don't do that this morning if that's you. Commit your life fully to Jesus. The key verse in our passage in verse 20, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, Jesus said, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And our apostle John would write in his letters, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, to free us. And in a matter of months, in our storyline in the Gospel of Luke, from when Jesus said that, the kingdom of God has come upon you in chapter 11, verse 20. In a matter of months, Jesus would die upon a cross and he would be raised from the dead for our salvation. That would be the key event. That would be the takeover. That would be the moment of plundering Satan's realm and his hold on sinful humanity. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2.13 and following, where he writes, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, God, made you alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he is taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he, God the Father, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, speaking about the spiritual realm, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Jesus Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public display, disgrace of them, triumphing over them by Jesus Christ, the one who died to release us. This is the greatest blessing and the most powerful assurance we have this morning is that when we leave the, trial, the age of neutrality, which is the age we live in, and join in with Jesus as a genuine, true follower, the blessings start flowing in our life. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful grace toward us in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you determined at the right time to come into this world as a human being and start destroying the works of the devil in a new way. We praise you, Lord God, for this grace of faith that you have given to us to choose, to be able to cause us to see the glory of Jesus Christ this morning. We ask that you would cause us to see the blessings that continually pile up for us in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the presence of the Spirit in our life, not only for our own purification and growth, but for us to be powerful witnesses to Jesus. We thank you for the true knowledge of God that you've given to us in the scriptures, the gifts of the Spirit that we can serve you, and the hope for heaven that attends us every day of this life. Jesus, we praise you for attacking the evil one, for ransacking his world, and for rescuing us out of his grasp. Lord Jesus, you put us on commission as your church to participate in your mission, and we want to gather with you and not be a cause of division in any way, of your purposes, but to gather the harvest, to gather the flock, to gather your elect from throughout the world. We pray these things for your glory in this church. Amen.